Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. Today's topic is the UAE, that small rich Gulf country which has led the counter-revolution against the Arab Spring and is deeply involved in many of the Saudi Arabian Crown Prince's recent misadventures. It's also becoming inextricably linked to the web of intrigue surrounding Donald Trump, election hacking, Cambridge Analytica and fake news. But that's a topic for future discussions. This episode is a little bit different from usual, an experimental format, because it's not a discussion, it's just Iyad, some audio notes that he made on an article he read whilst we were working on our book. It starts off slow, but it picks up. And if you want to understand more about GCC Dynamics, it's an absolute must listen. Hope you enjoy it. And please share your comments with us on Twitter, hashtag Arab Tyrant Manual. <laughs> So I'm doing my regular daily reading and I come across this article on the National Enquirer by someone called Samuel Ramani. And it's about the alliance between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. It's titled, The Saudi-UAE Alliance Could Be Weaker Than It Appears. And this caught my attention. Very smart line of analysis. I mean, I think taking a look at the premise behind the Saudi-UAE alliance is necessary I mean, after reading the article, and it is definitely well written. However, I I have to say that I disagree with a big chunk of uh, the logic presented. However, I'm going to try to use this as a kind of jumping point to maybe talk a little bit about uh, the Saudi-UAE alliance and maybe about the United Arab Emirates and what it might be looking for uh, strategically. I mean, we... We, we covered Saudi Arabia, uh, we spoke a little bit about Iran, but only in the context of Saudi Arabia as well. And maybe it's time to speak about uh, a little bit about the UAE as well. So I think the article argues that uh, unlike Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, you know, it doesn't see, it, it's a little bit uh, more nuanced in its alliance uh, making and that uh, Saudi Arabia seems to have the sectarian view of the region and would not want to invest in any way in any Shia actor, regardless who they are. In fact, I'm going to read a little bit from the article itself over here. So this is what it says. It says Riyadh's international conduct is overtly driven by its Sunni identity, rendering pro-Iran Shia forces as hostile antagonists that should be repressed at all costs. And it goes on to say, the UAE's foreign policy vision rejects Saudi Arabia's sectarian approach to regional po- conflicts. And it even goes to say that Abu Dhabi has stridently defended secularism in the Middle East. Um, okay, so let's, let's, uh, let's unpack this. First of all, this might have been true if we were talking pre-Muhammad bin Salman. I mean, if uh, if this idea about you know Saudi Arabia being unwilling to cooperate with any Shia actor, uh, of course, I think the operative word there is pro-Iran. Of course, pro-Iran, it's going to, it's, it's not going to want to to cooperate with them. And of course, the same is going to apply for the United Arab Emirates as well. But I think that a lot of a lot of this analysis, and you know, he goes on to speak. I think this is the main. Uh, line of disagreement that uh, that he's speaking about, whereby Saudi Arabia has a has a quote unquote sectarian approach, while uh, the United Arab Emirates is more concerned with Islamists. 
so it's more about uh, an ideology rather than a sect. It seems that this is something that might have been true at some point, but is not true anymore. Uh, let's remember that Saudi Arabia has actually recently fully normalized relations with uh, Muqtada Sadr, who is a Shia cleric, uh, an Iraqi cleric. And of course, they did this on, on the premise that Muqtada Sadr's movement is anti-Iran, or at least it is pro-Iraqi uh, nationalism. Uh, in a sense, that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely an eminently Shia institution, which is, uh, it's an eminently Shia movement, uh, which is also very much opposed to Iranian hegemony in Iraq. So this kind of uh, conflicts with this idea that, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia would not cooperate with anyone who is not Sunni. As for the United Arab Emirates, I think the recent normalization again and the recent uh, alliance between the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia with Al-Islah Party in um, in Yemen, uh, which is necessary right now because you know they have to kind of reset their alliances or uh, take a take another look at their alliances after the assassination of uh, ex-Yemeni President Saleh and you know kind of the uh, the sidelining of his party. I think a lot of his party uh, officials have also been assassinated. So, of course, it is kind of a quote-unquote marriage, marriage of convenience. But again, it shows that the United Arab Emirates is willing to cooperate with some Islamists if they have common enemies. And this, in this case, they really need to push back uh, the Houthis, which is basically a Shia movement, originally from northern Yemen. Uh, they're actually Zaydis. They're not. They're not. You know. They're not from the same uh, Shia sect as as Iran. Iran are basically twelve Shias. These are Zaydi Shias. Uh, even though their ideology is kind of also deviated, the you know Zaydis themselves tell me that uh, their ideology has deviated from original Zaydism, becoming a lot more political and uh, revolutionary. But I think the key to understanding the United Arab Emirates over here is really that they're opposed to any movement which has transnational appeal. The Gulf states in general, I mean, uh, this is something that is really, really interesting to study further. The concept of the modern state is far more accepted. Statism, uh, as it were, is actually more accepted in the Gulf region than elsewhere in the Arab world. Perhaps because this is a region of the world which actually saw a lot of success, a lot of increase in human development indices, uh, a lot of uh, development, a lot of increase in education, uh, security, and most importantly, peace and stability under the modern state. And this did not exist before the modern state. Before the modern state, this was actually quite an unstable region with a lot of you know, internecine warfare going back centuries, really. So I think for this reason, the people of the region uh, are more accepting and more, they have a more positive view of, of the idea of a modern state. And this, of course, is not only among people, but also among the leadership themselves. They actually very much believe that the state is a very positive uh, factor in society, a very positive player in society. Uh, this is, I think, unlike other regions of the Arab world where the state was actually not very, the, the rise of the modern state brought with it uh, dictatorship. 
So the rise of the modern state in a lot of Arab, uh, a lot of the Arab world, other than the Gulf region, actually came with dictatorship and came with ideologies such as Baathism, or you know, nutcase stuff like Gaddafi's uh, ideology, if, we can, if you want to even call it an ideology. Uh, and this, I think, has uh, made a certain part of the Arab world very uh, suspicious of modern states and of statism generally. Uh, which really doesn't exist in, in the Gulf region right now. So the factor, I think, the key factor here is that the United Arab Emirates government, and not only the Uni not only the UAE government, I think other governments as well, are very suspicious of any ideology which can appeal across borders, across states, which is transnational in nature. Islamism is such uh, an ideology. Uh, and their support for quote-unquote secularism, of course, it is not, I mean, this is this is infuriating in a way because people kind of don't distinguish between um, uh, liberal secularism and authoritarian secularism. They don't, they don't distinguish between the Soviet Union's secularism and between the United States or Norway's, for example, secularism. There is a liberal secularism which is based upon separation of uh, church quote-unquote church and state or the, the religious institution and the state apparatus such that the state does not control religion and religion does not control the state so it's basically a respectful separation and a respect for borders or and boundaries between the two institutions but then there's another kind of secularism which is authoritarian secularism and this is the kind of secularism that we see in the arab world unfortunately it's a kind of secularism where the ruling establishment completely gobbles up the religious establishment and then uses it, you know, rides it and then uses it for legitimacy. So it's not exactly a respectful separation. Rather, it's an actual hegemonic uh, relationship where the state completely controls religion and uses religion to further its own goals. This is not secularism. I, and I'm really annoyed that people keep calling this secularism. And, you know, of course, the UAE lobbyists are pretty smart and they know that the word secularism says something, it speaks at some level to, the West, to, to a Western audience, and they use the word knowing full well what they're doing. So what I'm saying here is that it's not really Islamist or, sec or, or secular which really explains the alliances of the United Arab Emirates. It's rather they're threatened by any transnational um, ideology if tomorrow a secular transnational ideology appears, they're going they're going to be threatened by by it as well. But for the moment, they're most they feel most threatened by uh, Islamism. Of course, they're also they're, they're also pretty much threatened by the Arab Spring, the, the ideal of the Arab Spring, which is again, it's not exactly theocratic, it's not exactly Islamist. It's you know, I I wouldn't call it secular either, but you know, it's it's again a transnational ideology, and they fought it as much as they could because you know of course the the narrative they employ is that oh it's islamist and it's not islamist and they're threatened they know it's not islamist and they're threatened by it regardless the uae sees the the, the iranian axis especially you know groups such like the houthis and hezbollah as a security threat uh, because they have uh, you know they have uh, military capabilities that are not available to smaller groups uh, small terrorist group. It, they can actually use grad missiles, shoot missiles at cities, and at you know recently the the Houthis claimed to have shot uh, a Scud missile, uh, at a modified Scud missile, I think, at uh, the Abu Dhabi's nuclear reactor, which is still under construction. And we don't know whether that ever that actually happened. It definitely did not uh, reach its target for sure. 
but this is the kind of security threat that we're, that the United Arab Emirates has been aware of for years, and uh, it appears that whatever uh, they did to try to mitigate the, th that uh, has not actually worked so well. So these are the two threats they see: ideologically, any transnational ideology; uh, militarily, you know, a group which is kind of a militant group which is. Um, I, I don't know how to describe it, but you know, it's, it's a militant group which is which is not exactly a small terror group. You know, that's hell bent on attacking a mall somewhere, uh, infiltrating a mosque and blowing themselves within it, etc. I think they they have they they feel confident that they can actually they have the intelligence capabilities to actually discover and dismantle such a network before it actually strikes the country. That that's my theory. My, I might be wrong, um, but the main thread that they see, as far as I know. Uh, the the main threat that they see, the main security threat, is actually kind of missiles, scuds, that that kind of stuff. Now, ideologically, I think, and I think we we're going to see how in the future, I think we're going it's going to become more apparent that they they kind of there's kind of a trade-off between their ideological what what they perceive to be an ideological threat versus what they perceive to be uh, a security threat. And I think security threats in the end are not as serious as ideological threats. And this is why I think this would explain why you know security threats in the end w would not ever uh, threaten the UAE as a regime. It might you know it might disrupt uh, life uh, if it ever gets bad. I don't think I don't think they're going to allow it to get bad. But if it gets bad, yes, it might disrupt life. It might disrupt the economy. It might you know it might be pretty bad. But at the same time, it's not. I don't think it's not going to be really a threat to the regime in that level. I think a serious threat to the regime would be something that can infect or something that can attract the imagination of of their own people. And I think that's basically an ideology, a transnational ideology. And I think that's why the UAE will always, not that just the UAE, but I think you know Arab regimes in general, are always going to look at ideological threats as more serious than security threats. And if it's both, if it's the same, like it's basically an ideology threat, which is also a security threat, then of course, all the more reason. Even though I think, if I put myself in their shoes, I think I would be less concerned about security threats than ideological threats, because uh, security threats actually, in a way, work for them. Security threats, in a way, uh, increase, uh, they, they give them more opportunities and chances to um, extract more consent from, from the population. And as the saying goes, give your country a touch of terrorism and then you can rule it forever in the name of fighting terrorism. So returning to the article at hand, I think, yeah, I mean, it is important to study the premises upon which the UAE-Saudi alliance is formed. And it is interesting to see that the UAE actually, through the character, through MBS, through Mohammed bin Salman, who I think uh, the personal relationship between Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed is very interesting. Uh, some have described it as a mentorship, where Mohammed bin Zayed is kind of the mentor uh, of Mohammed bin Salman. Before Mohammed bin Salman's rise, I remember describing this relationship as uh, the United Arab Emirates, the small country, looking at Saudi Arabia, this large, rich country, as kind of an elephant that it can ride. An elephant who is not particularly smart, uh, not particularly agile, but, you know, you know, it has this ability to ride it and make it, you know, uh, implement its regional plan. And I think in the character of MBS, they kind of found exactly what they needed. Someone who is young and who, you know, whose strategic vision kind of matches their own. 
uh, to the point that I have seen uh, comments on on Saudi Twitter from Saudi opposition figures and you know opposition accounts. And some of them tweet uh, under their real name, and some of them are anonymous. But they actually have described their 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 own country's policies as UAE hijacked, like the Saudi Arabian uh, policies right now, foreign policy, and not just foreign policy, but you know policies elsewhere as well, as being hijacked by the UAE. Uh, and that's very interesting. I don't know how much I agree with it. I think I think that's not completely true, but it's a very interesting angle for analysis. And that's why it's important to actually take a look at the relationship between the two countries, the alliance, the cracks within the alliance, if any. I do believe that at some point we might have a really good reason to write such an article and say, hey, uh, the strategic uh, concerns of these two countries do not completely align. And I think I think if we ever do that, it won't be about their strategic vision as much as, let's say, the fact that those two countries are different and what makes them healthy is also different. So let me explain what I mean by that. The UAE is a small country, population 10 million, out of which only a million, about a million, are actually Emirati citizens. 90% are non-citizens. Uh, the UAE does not have, at least it, it has not had for several years since, you know, since they actually went ahead and dismantled uh, all Muslim Brotherhood uh, aligned uh, networks within the country, they don't really have a serious internal threat. And the fact that 90% of the population are actually uh, non-citizens also means that, uh, of course, it can present a threat in the future. I think it, would become, it will become a problem, but it's not a problem just yet. The UAE also is, d is not a country that actually aspires to become a center of the Islamic world or the Arab civilization. Uh, it's simply a country which is happy enough to be to be described kind of as, I think uh, a few years ago, it was actually described as Sparta, that small country with an outsized uh, you know, military and foreign policy influence. So let's, let's take a look at Saudi Arabia, on the other hand. Saudi Arabia is, so Saudi Arabia is 32 million people, I think, out of which uh, I think 27 million citizens, and a country which is actually, it's a country that's at a, uh, at a turning point. And I think MBS's rise actually reflects that. Saudi Arabia actually would become a lot more stable, and I think this is something which will become very apparent in the future. Saudi Arabia will become much more stable if there is more acknowledgement from the regime, from the, the rulers, that the people, the people of Saudi Arabia, need to have more of a say in how their country is governed. Meaning that uh, Saudi Arabia would actually be become a more stable place. It is actually to its benefit to actually open up some political rights. This is absolutely not to the benefit of the United Arab Emirates. And I think this is the something. This is the thing. Of course, MBS right now is not talking about political rights and his whole plan, his whole vision 2030. We talked about this in, in our first uh, episode on the podcast. Vision 2030 does not include any political rights. In fact, it is almost designed to preempt any kind of political rights. But I think at some point, this is going to become more and more and more acknowledged that Saudi Arabia needs to open up its politics. In order to transform its economy, etc., it needs to open up its politics. Saudi Arabia is it's, uh, it's actually running out of cash reserves. Uh, the UAE, on the other hand, of course, doesn't have this problem. It has managed its oil wealth very, very well. It still has a lot of oil. Uh, it has a small native population as well, and that helps when it comes to if you divide all of that wealth divided by you know th the number of citizens. So it can kick the can down the road a lot further. Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, has run out of road. 
And this is, I think, the main, the, the main thing that can present disruption to the alliance between those two regimes in the future. Uh, of course, the other thing about the article is that it assumes that the UAE has no problem, has no particular problem with the Houthis. And I think this really, this, this kind of misses the point that the Houthis have actually have tremendous hatred now for the UAE regime. So the Houthis are not going to, to stop trying to hurt the UAE. And, you know, the, the, the missile that they fired a few weeks ago, I think a couple of weeks ago, that's, that's, only, that's only an indication of that. And, of course, the, the article cites the UAE attacking at some point al-Islah militants. Uh, Islah basically is a Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated party in Yemen, attacking them because of, you know, its whole uh, anti-Muslim Brotherhood animus. I don't know when the article was written, but, you know, this is over now. The UAE right now has actually met with the leaders of al-Islah, and there's a formal alliance now between, uh, you know, between, between them versus, you know, to push back the Houthis. So the article also comments on Syria. And I think this is where it kind of, the thing is Yemen and Syria present two very different situations to the UAE and Saudi Arabia. I mean, as, as it has been rightly um, explained uh, by other commentators, Syria is actually the center, the dead center of the fight the proxy war between the Saudi axis and the Iranian axis. Yemen to, to, uh, to Iran, I think, is kind of a side battle, but it is of tremendous strategic importance, security importance to Saudi Arabia. It's actually more important in the, from that angle. It's more important than, than Syria uh, because Yemen is right there on the border with Saudi Arabia uh, and not, not that far. It's in the environment of the United Arab Emirates. I think this also, uh, it's also worth noting that um, the United Arab Emirates, a lot of the UAE ruling families actually originate from Yemen, from southern Yemen specifically. So there is also a tribal affiliation be between the UAE and, uh, and Yemen. And this is why the UAE has at some point explored uh, increasing its soft power, uh, explored the idea of actually s supporting separatism in Yemen. You know, like, okay, let the Houthis have North Yemen you know, let's actually invest in South Yemen so South Yemen can kind of become a buffer state where we have tremendous influence. And they have been increasing it, their soft power a lot in that region, in Southern Yemen. So while Syria is really the center, uh, if you really want to push back the, the Iranian axis, you have to push them back from the, central, from the center. But as far as the UAE and Saudi Arabia's um, uh, strategic and security are concerned, Yemen is more important. And this is why you can't really compare their behavior versus Yemen to their behavior versus Syria. It's, it's two different things. Uh, the article closes by describing Saudi Arabia's policy as pro-Sunni and the UAE as pro-secularist. And I think this, is, um, this kind of summarizes my disagreement uh, with the line, with the logic of the article so far. I don't think the UAE is pro-secular. I think it's simply against any transnational movement. Uh, that can uh, present an ideological threat to it on the inside. And it's also against any kind of you know, security threat from pro-Iran forces. Uh, Houthis included, of course, Hezbollah as well. But Hezbollah as well, they have been actually expelling anyone who has ties to Hezbollah for years now. It's not new. As for Saudi Arabia, I don't think really pros... Uh, I mean, yes, they are. They, they want to present themselves as the center of the Sunni world and the center, you know, basically the leader, leaders of the Islamic world and the Arab world. And this is not something that the UAE ever aspired to. 
and for this reason, I mean, this actually affects their policy making as well and their narratives, etc. Uh, and I think this is, uh, an, again, an important uh, angle that might also present that some kind of disagreement uh, on, on the long run between Saudi Arabia and the UAE in terms of, in terms of their foreign policy and their strategic vision. But again, I mean, you know, we have seen that uh, they are willing to actually ally with uh, Shias as well, uh, such as Muqtada Sadr and others, in order to push back Iranian influence. I mean, they also, for example, invested or at least... Uh, um, give public support to the Mujahidi Khalq, which is a, uh, a Shia, again, a Shia Iranian, anti-Iranian regime organization, anti-Khomeini organization, uh, anti-Iranian regime organization, but they're also Iranian Shias as well. So perhaps the one place in which I think Saudi Arabia and the UAE both agree completely is when it comes to the Qatar crisis. I think they really want uh, Qatar's role as a disruptor ended, be it through Qatar's support for the Arab Spring, Qatar's support for the Muslim Brotherhood, which actually annoyed a lot of people, including people who are pro-Arab Spring, uh, and Qatar's uh, policy when it comes to Al Jazeera, and of course the different Al Jazeera's. I think the different Al Jazeera's, uh, Al Jazeera Arabic, English, and Asia Plus have kind of different, they, they appear to have different mandates. I think you know people have joked that Al Jazeera Arabic is kind of like Islamist, Al Jazeera English is more more of a more or less respectable uh, organization. Doesn't really doesn't seem to be overtly Islamist. Has some really pretty good commentators. Meanwhile, Asia Plus is you know again very successful, but also more it has kind of a social justice kind of. Uh, so it's not exactly. I wouldn't say that they're all the same, but yeah, they want them gone. They want Al Jazeera. They want this disruptor gone, and I think this is where they actually fully agree. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you've learned something. Please share it with people that you think would find it interesting. See you next time. من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف